Fort Willing today. I'm going to finish the series, I guess you could say, about the perpetuity or the authority of the Lord's churches. To Matthew 16, verse 18 and through 20. Well, let's start in verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we looked at that about Peter. The word Peter means rock or stone, and that's like a stone you would throw. Um, I think the word was Petros, uh, where the word rock is Petra, which means a mass of rock or a cliff or a ledge-like thing. So it's upon this ledge or this mass of rock, which is Christ. First Corinthians 10 very clearly says that rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So it's upon this rock, it's upon Christ, he said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then also in Matthew chapter 28, in verses 18 through 20, of course this is the Great Commission, which is given five times in the scriptures, probably more details here than most other places, it says, And Jesus came, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The word power there means authority. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And so, as we consider this, I'm going to look at the, the perpetuity of the Lord's churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your love, your mercies. Thank you for your truth of thy word. And I pray, Father, that you give us understanding into thy word and apply it to our life, to our church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in Matthew 16, the Lord said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church or his churches. The word there, prevail against, means to be strong to another's detriment. Uh, to be superior in strength or to overpower. So the Lord's saying, look, the gates of hell, not even the gates of hell are going to overcome my churches. Um, they're not going to overpower. And then in Matthew 28, he gave us a command to continue in his authority until the end of the world. And that word, end of the world means the end of the age. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we define this as perpetuity, which means a state of being perpetual or endless. So what the Lord is saying to us is that he's given us truth and that, his, that he started his churches and he has given his churches power or authority to continue until he comes. That there will always be true New Testament churches. The gates of hell would not prevail against his churches. Uh, you know, we say, we, we, we know from history that churches, churches come and churches go. What, when we say talk about perpetuity, we're not going to say this church is going to continue until Jesus comes. What we're saying is there will always be churches of Jesus Christ until he comes. The churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are no more. But as those churches disappeared or apostatized, other churches were raised up. And, and so we'll see that. So according to the promises and commands Jesus gave, his church was never ceased to be until his return at the end of this age. So there will always be true churches that hold to biblical doctrine. Protestantism, on the other hand, teaches us that they restored true churches back to existence. The Mormons, you know, they call it the Latter-day Saints, and that they, they will tell you that they are the restored church of Jesus Christ. Of course, they're a cult. But, 
But anyway, but Protestantism teaches this, that they restored true Christianity to, back into existence again. You know, Anabaptists and our Baptist forefathers have taught that true churches have been perpetual throughout all of history. Though persecuted, some groups even seemingly annihilated, yet they appear somewhere else. Because they were, one of the things that was, they could be identified as was they were evangelistic. They believed in starting other churches. Um, Today, some who even call themselves Baptists believe the theory that baptism, Baptists came out of the Protestant Reformation in the 1600s. William Whitsitt, who was the third president of the Southern Baptist Convention in the late 1800s, uh, taught that Baptists in England invented immersion as a mode of baptism in 1641. Uh, but the Bible tells us otherwise. In fact, look at Jude in verse 3. Jude in verse 3. Now Jude, of course, is a half-brother of Jesus. He was born after Jesus' birth. You know, if you go to Matthew, I think it's chapter 13, don't quote me at that, but Matthew 13, 14, or 15, somewhere in there, the, the family... The brethren and sisters, it doesn't name the sisters, but the brothers are named. There was James and Judas and Simon and Theatus. I'm not sure what the other one was, but I think there was four of them. Anyway, James, we know, wrote the book of James, became a pastor after, uh, after Peter, I believe it was. And then Jude is another one of the half-brothers born to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. And Jude says this, in Jude verse 3 it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So he says the faith was once delivered. Now the, the phrase there, the faith, is not talking about our faith or your faith or his faith. No, it's talking about the body of revealed truth, biblical doctrine. It really, it really means, objectively, the substance of Christian faith or what is believed by Christians. And so, so you're to earnestly contend for this faith that was once delivered. In other words, these truths are eternal. They do not change. And they were once given. And they are for eternity. Paul uses this phrase... Many times in writing to Timothy, for example, in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 9, he says, uh, I'm in 2 Timothy, I thought something didn't look right. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 9, he says, For what thanks can we render to God again for you, for all the joy whereof, wherewith you joy for your sakes before God? That's not, that's not the right. I know I'm in 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> I know 1 Timothy is in my Bible. Anyway, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 9. Holding the mystery of, again, the faith in a pure conscience. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. So he's, you know, we talked about this, uh, it's been, what, three weeks ago now, that, you know, it was prophesied that there would, apostasy would come and people would depart from the truth and there would be false churches and that's what we have today as a result of that. But So he said they're going to depart from the faith. They're going to depart from a, what is believed or what was given for Christians to believe that it's unchanging. And chapter 5 verse 8 says, But if any provide not for his own, for his own especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith. So here's, here's a doctrine that, you know, if, if a man doesn't provide for his own house, he's denied the body of truth that God has given, the responsibility for a man to provide for his house. He hath denied the faith and is worth an infidel. And again in chapter 6, verse 10, For the love of mine is the root of all evil, which will some coveted after they have erred from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we are commanded to hold to the truth and this truth also is perpetual. 
It is unending. And even as the scriptures, you know, God gave us promises concerning the scriptures. Matthew 24, 35 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And one of the interesting things I pointed out to you in that graph I gave you was, the same people that brought apostasy and started apostatizing in, uh, in the early churches are the same people that come up with the modern versions and began to change the scriptures. And so, so we believe, as Baptists, we believe in the perpetuity of the Lord's churches. That is, that they're throughout history from the time of Christ. And, you know, Jesus started the first church. Uh, the material was prepared by John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized the disciples and then followed Christ. And they were never rebaptized. And so Jesus started the first church, and then from that church, other churches were started, and it proliferated. You know, you come to Acts 13, and the church of Antioch sends out Paul and Barnabas, and they start churches all over that Mediterranean area. Others go up into Rome and Italy, and by the end of the first century, the gospel was in England. Um, and, you know, there have been many that have testified to this truth, uh, the borough of the census, United States Department of Commerce, uh, that's a, you know, this is a, the, you know, again, government recognized the distinction between Protestants and Baptists. And, and this is what the borough of the census, the United States Department of Commerce said, quote, the Baptist bodies of today trace their origin as distinct communities to the Protestant Reformation. It is claimed indeed that the churches of the apostolic age were in doctrine, policy, and ordinances the exact counterparts of Baptist churches today, unquote. Now, Cardinal Hossuis, who is Catholic, in 1544, president of the Council of Trent, said this, Were it not the Baptists have been grievously tormented and cut off with a knife for the past 1,200 years, they would swarm greater numbers than all the Reformers. 1,200 years were the years preceding the Reformation, which Rome persecuted Baptists with the most cruel persecution thinkable. Mosham, who was Lutheran, said, quote, Before the rise of Lutheran Calvin, they lay secret, secreted in almost all the countries of Europe persons who adhered tenaciously to the principles of modern Dutch Baptists. Um, and in this book called The Religions of the World, and I'm not sure where I got this. I think it, somebody sent it to me, but I'm not going to say who I think it was because I'm not sure about that. Anyway, it's, it's called Religions of the World, uh, and it's by Vincent L. Miller, Milner. And in the, in the book, uh, it says this, quote, It is this clear conviction of the truth and equity of their principles that has made the Baptists the pioneers of religious liberty in its full extent, both in the old world and the new. Before William Penn, before Lord Baltimore, before Jeremy Taylor, Milton or Locke, or even before William I of Orange, in the 16th century their clear testimony is on record. And theirs is the high honor of establishing the little colony of Rhode Island in 1636. The first civil government in modern times, which declared the constitutes should be free, in which noble declaration, 50 years later, they were followed by the Friends of Pennsylvania and since the Revolution of 1776 by all the United States. This honor history now awards them, but how few know what toils and sacrifice and what vigilance, patience, prayers, tears, and blood it cost the Baptists to win this boon of freedom for all mankind. Unquote. And so... You know, this is the, this is the uh, teaching, or the, of course, the teaching of the Scripture and what Baptists throughout the centuries have held to and have taught. And so, uh, you know, what we need to consider is, you know, as you, as you think about, you know, the apostasy and the multiplicity of diverse kinds of churches in our world today, this is the question we need to answer. What are true churches? What identifying marks are there that identify a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Well, I'm going to give you three things. Three basic things that I think are identifying marks. So how do we determine what churches have biblical authority and what churches do not? You know, there are even churches that preach the gospel that are not true churches. And here's why. Number one, do they preach or teach a biblical salvation? You know, the message, the gospel message began with John. And many will say, John's not even a New Testament prophet. But in Luke chapter 16, again, we need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? That's, our, that's to be our authority, not what men think or what theologians say. But what does the Scriptures teach? And John 16, verse 16 says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man pressed into it. So until John, so up until John, there was a law and the prophets. But with John, we're bringing a new era. A new era. And since John, the kingdom of God is preached. So John's was the one that started... Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 3. Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized. That was his message. In uh, chapter 20, chapter 20 of Luke, and, and we know that the Lord Jesus gave his stamp of approval that John was authoritative. He had authority from God. John, or not John, Luke 20 and verse 1. It says, It came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and scribes came upon him with the elders and spake with him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye him not? But and if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Now to me it's obvious that Jesus believed that John's authority was from God. In fact, John 1 verse 6 says, there was a man sent from God. And that was John. John the Baptist was a man sent with the authority of Almighty God to baptize. To preach the gospel and to baptize. And, and so the, that's, what, that's the message. That is the gospel message. Repent and be baptized. Jesus came on the scene, and, and you know, Jesus continued that same message in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Jesus says that uh, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same thing John said. Uh, in Luke 13, verses 3 and 5, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus preached repentance. This continued with the apostles and all the New Testament preachers. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the missions of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 31, again he says, Him hath God exalted his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. In Acts 14 and verse 15, we read this this morning, Here's a good illustration of what repentance is, though the word is not used. He, Paul and Barnabas are saying to these people at Lystra, Look, sirs, why do you use these things? We also are men of like passion with you and preach unto you. You should turn from. That's what repentance is. It's a turning from. It's a change of mind. It, 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 and it results in a turning. Turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. And, of course, this goes on. Paul in, in Athens said that uh, the times of this ignorance God has winked at, but now commanded all men everywhere to repent, Acts 17.30. And then, of course, in Acts 20 and verse 21, 
He says, testifying both the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, you can go on through, throughout the whole New Testament, 2 Peter 3.9, Peter is saying that, that God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to belief? No. Repentance. Repentance. And, of course, in Revelation, John writes that you need to repent. And so, this is a biblical message. Do they preach a biblical salvation? If a church doesn't preach repentance or teach repentance, it's not the truth. It's an easy believer. It's really a false gospel. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine some years ago, and you know, I said, I, I've come to believe that this easy believism is damning more souls than anything. He said, I agree. The easy believism of Billy Graham. Now, are there some people who get saved? Yes, there are. But there are many that have false assurances as a result of no repentance being taught. And some are even so bold as to say that, that, uh, to say that you know, there's no need of repentance. There's no need of it. But that's what all the New Testament preachers taught. So biblical message. There must be repentance. Repentance is a change of mind which always results in a change of action. And that's what you know, is defined very clearly for us in Matthew chapter 3 when John said, do works meet for repentance. You know, I illustrated here a couple weeks ago about you know, my, my, uh, my alarm went off one morning at 6 o'clock and I, changed my, I repented. I turned it off and went back to sleep. What I do? I changed my mind and I changed my action. If you repent, you're going to change your action. There's going to be an action change. And if you don't change your action, it's because you did not repent. So it's not a work. It's a change of mind, which results, the fruit of it is a change of action. The second thing is, the question we need to ask is, what is the origin of the church? This is vitally important because uh, Jesus said in Matthew that all power is given unto me. In fact, go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we just read this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We need to ask ourselves, what is the origin of the church that does the baptizing? Are they authorized by the Lord? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, notice, the grace given unto me. The grace of God. So this was given to God. Now how was it given to Paul? By God. Well, the church of Antioch is praying and fasting, and the Spirit of God says... Separate me, Barnabas and Saul. And the church laid hands on them and sent them the way. So the authority of God was demonstrated by the church sending them that. They were the, were the ones authorized to send them out. And so Paul is saying, look, this, this has been given, this grace has been given unto me through the church at Antioch, has been given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid a foundation, another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid. Foundation is already laid. I'm just a builder. I'm building on the foundation. Because the foundation is Jesus Christ. And that goes back to Matthew 28 when Jesus said, All power, in other words, all authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore. In other words, because I have authority, and I'm giving you my authority to go. And he gives his authority to his churches. This is also taught in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 21. Ephesians 2, verse 19. Now ye therefore are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, see, he's the starting point. The cornerstone was always the first stone to be laid in any building. 
So, and every other stone is laid in accordance with the cornerstone. So, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the, the Lord, whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So, he is the chief cornerstone. He's the beginning point. So, so what we see in the New Testament is churches sending out men with authority that have been authorized, like Paul and Barnabas, they were sent out to start other churches. You know, Midcoast sent out Chris Teal, Pastor Chris Teal, to start Carson River, is it Carson River Baptist Church or Carson Valley Baptist Church? I can't remember sure the name of it in uh, Carson Valley there in Nevada. Uh, you know, Calvary Baptist sent out uh, the Greens and us to start Lighthouse Baptist Church. Um, we have sent out Brother Francis to start a church in Taiwan. And, and so this is the way it's done. You know, in, in Protestantism, it's schools and denominations that train and send men and sometimes ordain them, even in fundamentalism. The school I went to, they would ordain. The mission ordained. I remember the mission. I didn't think about it at the time. I didn't understand all this stuff at the time. But the, but the mission, quote unquote, ordained a guy to the ministry. He's no longer in the ministry, but they ordained him. Church didn't do it. The mission did. You know, I always thought that was kind of funny. But see, what is the origin or root of Protestantism? Where is it traced back to? What's its foundation? The Roman Catholic Church. Of whom the Bible says, the Spirit speaks expressly in the latter times, many shall depart from the faith. See, the, 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 the apostates broke away from the true churches uh, in the 300, early 300s, and then Constantine embraced, quote-unquote, some form of Christianity. And at the Council of Nicaea, you know, basically what was established was the Roman Catholic Church. And it was apostate. It was state-sanctioned. And, and later on had state authority and ruled over states. Uh, see, the origin of Protestantism is Catholicism. That's their foundation. It is not Jesus Christ. It's an apostate false religion. Where's fundamentalism's roots? Protestantism. You know, interesting. It's interesting. When I was in Bible school, they gave us two books to read by George W. Dollar. George W. Dollar was Baptist in doctrine, but he was a fundamentalist. And uh, one was called The Fight for Fundamentalism. The other one was called The History of Fundamentalism. And, and, and I was just looking through that uh, here a couple weeks ago. And the interesting thing is that George Dollar admitted that if, and he called it, if fundamentalism survives... And my opinion is, let it die. Now, there's something you need to understand. There is a difference between being fundamental and fundamentalism. The word fundamental means has the idea of literal interpretation. So really, true Baptists are fundamental Bible-believing Christians because we take a literal interpretation of Scripture. Fundamentalism is a movement of men. That had a beginning. That had a beginning. And that was in the early 1900s when the apostasy came into the schools of the day. And, and, and so there was a, a reaction against the apostasy that was being brought over from Germany and other places. And of course, you know, even starting in the Southern Baptist Convention with William Whitsett teaching that baptism, you know, had its roots in... Uh, in um, uh, England in 1641, and, you know, there was a reaction. In fact, he lost his position as the Southern Baptist president at that time. 
because of the reaction. But so there was this all this apostasy come creeping in. So there was this rising up of these men to oppose this, and they started their own schools, and and so there's this movement. But what happened was, as you saw, in that much of that movement was Protestant based. Protestant based. It was a reaction to the Protestant schools, and you know. Um, you know uh, the, the uh, and of course then the Southern the Baptist Convention started though that wasn't a denomination per se but but you know the, the, so there's all this apostasy coming in so but this this movement is basically fundamentalist based it wasn't Baptist based and you had men like D L Moody, R A Tory, uh, Billy Sunday who was Presbyterian, uh, D L Moody was Congregationalist he was not a Baptist. Uh, although many of these would have baptized by immersion, but Billy Sunday didn't. Um, and uh, Gypsy Smith, you know, all these, and people considered all these great evangelists. They were Protestant in origin. And, and so there, there was this rise, and you had Presbyterians, like I, I mentioned some of these, um, uh, J. J. H. Machen and Carl McIntyre and Ian Paisley in Ireland, uh, they were Presbyterian, and so on. So, so this is the again the origin of fundamentalism. Uh, it's got a mixture of of Catholicism, Protestantism, trying to mix with the the true churches, and uh, and so. Uh, this is a question we need to ask. What is the origin? Uh, you know, many Baptists embraced fundamentalism and kind of got sucked into that movement. Now, does, that doesn't necessarily mean they cease to be Baptists. Now, at some point, if they continue to compromise, they will. In fact, go to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll see this. I think we'll see this. Revelation chapter 2. Now, just because a church say we are fundamental Baptists does not mean they're fundamentalists or part of the fundamentalism movement that was Protestant-based. Um, <clears throat> there's lots of, you know, the, the wording here is, is, is we need to understand. Anyway, look at uh, Revelation 2, verse 12. Unto the, to the angel of the church in Pogamos write, these say, saith he, which hath the sharp sword and two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Wow. Satan's seat is there. Thou holdest fast my name, hast not denied my faith, even in those days where an Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block for the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, that's, this is a, this is a, this, uh, I mentioned this, uh, uh, a rise of a clergy class, uh, an exaltation of pastors over people. It really means conquerors of the people. And, and of course, what you had was with, with the apostasy, you know, when, when Roman Catholic Church started, it didn't start in a day. It was kind of a gradual thing, but you had these bishops, as they were called back then. You know, you could biblically call me and Pastor Webb bishops. That's a biblical term for another name for the name pastor. We don't use it because of the connotation it has today. But anyway, so you had these pastors of the churches at Rome, influential churches that began to exalt themselves and exert power or authority over other churches. It was control. And that's the thing God says... I hate it. I hate it. You know, a pastor biblically has no authority beyond his own church. None. You know, somebody from Calvary could call me up and say, Hey, Pastor Byler, I want to know what you think of this. It's none of my business. I have no right to comment. It's not my responsibility. In fact, I'd be condemned by God if I did. 
Now, if Pastor Webb called me and said, I'm going to, somebody from our church wants to ask you a question, then I would be obliged to answer it. But otherwise, I have no authority whatsoever. None. You see, God hates that thing. Now, was this church an apostate church? I don't believe it was to that point yet. See, it was still a true church, though it had problems. You know, every church has problems. It's made up of people, and we people have some problems, do we not? So, you know, there were some things they were, they were dealing with and working with, and the Lord is saying, look, you take care of this. You need to exercise, and we'll get to this, discipline in this church and correct these measures. Or else, or else, verse 16, repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat that the hidden manna, give him a white stone, and a stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. And, and you could go on and read through all these churches. Now, I still believe that all these churches were, were true churches. But they were all in danger of losing that status. In fact, the last one is very close to it if not already has. That's Laodicea. So, so um, anyway, we have to understand that our origin is of vital importance. Where did we come from? Is our, is our origin of Protestantism, which is the apostate Roman Catholic Church, or is it from the lineage? Now, I'm not saying we all need to be able to, we need to, trace every church if you were baptized in another church you need to be able to trace it back to the days of Christ there, you, you can't always do that but of what history do you know concerning your church and that's what you to go with uh, so the origin of the church is important not who the pastor is here's another misconception well the pastor the pastor's not the one who has who authorizes it's the church that has the authority again go to Matthew chapter 16 <clears throat> you know the pastor is the leader of the church but he is not the church is the authority rests with the church of who he is representative of Matthew 16 verse 18 again and I say unto thee Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples, they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, some would say that from this passage, especially verse 19, that the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given exclusively to Peter, and that he opened up salvation to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. We did do that. And that all authority rests on him, and Peter was the first pope, therefore. However, you know, Peter's going to pass off the scene. And he did. And I believe it when he says, I will give unto thee the kingdom of heaven, it's again singular, but I think he's talking to his church. And the reason I say that is Matthew 18. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. So Matthew 18... Verse 15, Moreover, thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. He will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. No, this man is not put out of the church by going to his brother alone. Nor is he put out of the church by going to two or three witnesses. He's not put out of the church or considered a heathen man and a publican until he is brought before the church. Therefore, it is the church that has the authority to receive membership and to remove membership. Not Peter. He wasn't the first pope. The church. Not the pastor. I didn't have authority to remove 
a member of the church on my own. I get a vote like everyone else does. Now, I may direct the church to do that, but the church has to vote on it. So the authority rests with the church. Um, and then the third thing we look at, does the church practice church discipline? And again, we're looking here at Matthew 16 and verses 18 through 20 and then Matthew 18. You know, and, and this is, this is, this is a, a truth that the Lord gave to his disciples concerning the church. And this was taught throughout the Bible that the Lord's churches need to exercise discipline over its membership. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verses 2 through 5, uh, and I'll just read here verses 4 and 5, it says in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, or 5, 3 and 4 and 5, it says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 12, it says, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. So Paul's saying to the church of Corinth, look, we have no responsibility to judge them that are outside our church. We're not to judge the world. God's going to judge the world. We're to witness to the world. Now, when you witness to the world, you're going to condemn sin. You're going to point out their sin to show that they're sinners. But we're not, we're not their judge. God's their judge. But in the church, we are to judge those within the church. And, of course, he gives a list of things in, in verse uh, 11. But now I've written unto you not to keep company of any man that is called a brother, be a fornicator or covetous or an adulterer or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, no, not to eat. In other words, you're to discipline those. You're to judge those if it's somebody in the church. But there are people out in the world that are those kind of people. And it's not wrong to sit down and have lunch with them and, say, and talk to them about the gospel. But you know, if you believe in this universal church theory, you know, not known fundamentalists, they want to separate from everything and they want to boycott all the world and they want to do all this and that. What are they doing? They're trying to judge the world. They're judging the world. That's not our responsibility. We're to judge those that are within. You know, I used to, used to think, well, you know, I, it wouldn't be right for me to have dinner with a, let's say, a, a Lutheran preacher. Why not? It's not my church. It's not my church. He's out in the world. Maybe I get an opportunity to talk to him about the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you're a fundamentalist, you wouldn't do that. They're, they're ultra-separated. Ultra you know, they talk about separation and second-degree separation. No, all separation in Scripture has to do with the church, the local church. And so Paul says, we're to judge those that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So if that person is in your church and he's wicked, you need to put him out. That's church discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, 14, talk about it. And it's, it's spoken of in Revelation to the seven churches. You know, if you don't repent... Church discipline. You know how many churches practice church discipline today? You know, the ethical thing and the biblical thing for churches to do and what used to be practice, was common practice years ago was if you came from another church and visited our church or you went and visited another church, You'd get a, I'd get a phone call from that pastor saying, hey, so-and-so was here this morning. What's going on? And if, if our church voted somebody out, no other Baptist church would consider receiving them into membership until it was made right with this church. That's how church discipline is supposed to work. But what I see happen over and over and over again in 20-some years, 30, going, well, 30 years of ministry is, you know, I've seen this happen in Pennsylvania. There was these fundamentalist churches all over the place, and this person would leave this church and go to this church, and then they'd go to this church, and then they'd go to this church. 
and they were just received into membership and become active in these other churches until they caused a problem and they had to leave that and go to the next one. That's kind of the way it was. You know, I have never had anybody ever call me, I don't think in my entire life. You know, I haven't always been a pastor. But all the time I pastored, I've never had anybody call me and say, hey, uh, one of your church members was over at our church. Now, if somebody comes here from another church, the pastor's getting a phone call. Unless it's from a completely apostate church. Somebody visits here from a Roman Catholic church, I'm not calling the Catholic priest and saying, you know, you're a church member because it's a false church. Or a Lutheran church or a Presbyterian church. Not calling because they're a false church. See, church discipline. And even the soil of the Lord cried today. I was, I'll just share this with you. I have a pastor friend that I did a lot of work in his church in the early years when we were here up in Virginia. He would go to the sword conferences. He said he was at a sword conference and they had this panel of, you know, these big name preachers on the platform and they had a question and answer session, which they often do. He said, so I raised my hand and I said, what do you do about church discipline? And he said it got real quiet. And he said, for a while, nobody said anything. He said, finally, Paul Chapel, pastor of West Coast, pastor of Lancaster Baptist Church, California, said, we don't. He said, sooner or later, they just leave. That, friends, is unscriptural. It's also cowardly, and you're not helping anyone to repent of their sin. If you're unwilling to confront people about their sin, then you cease to be a biblical church. Now, there are many like that who at one time were biblical churches. But somewhere along the way, if a church continues in their unbiblical teachings, they will lose. And, of course, this is, this is what, if you look at Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and I'll conclude with this. This is what the church at Ephesus was in danger of. And this is the warning that our Lord is giving the church at Ephesus. When he's, you know, and he, he commends them for many great things. And then he says this in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. See, the warning was to this church at Ephesus, and to really all these churches, except the church at Philadelphia, uh, who didn't receive this warning, and I think the church at Smyrna didn't receive that same warning, the warning was, look, if you don't repent, if, the, if you persist in your sin, it's going to come to a place where I'm going to remove your candlestick and you cease to be a church of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some churches who have never been churches of Jesus Christ because of their origin. They may preach a gospel. Or a form of it. There may be saved people in there. There is. Some saved people in there. But it's not a church with the authority of Jesus Christ. It is not a biblical church. It is not a faithful bride of Christ. See, when, when the Lord speaks of a bride, he's talking about faithfulness. Are we being faithful? to the faith once delivered unto the saints. And so, these are things you need to consider. You know, our origin, I told a man just the other week, 
in Pennsylvania. He said, our origin is from a long line of persecuted and martyred Anabaptists. That's our origin. His church that he goes to, that was their original origin, but he is no longer. It is no longer. It's apostatized. But he has come to understand that the church he grew up in, the church that he still attends because there's really nothing else, much else around, is unbiblical. See, there are churches that are just that. They're churches of men. They were designed by men. They have organization structures that are designed by men without the real authority of Jesus Christ. And then there are true churches that hold to the doctrines that were once delivered unto the saints, continue to practice church discipline, and have their origin from the apostles and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ himself. And those are the ones that are holding, to the, and we need to hold to that faith. And, you know, we need to be careful. If we think about this, we need to be careful who we accept into membership. You know, if a person comes from a church that is not of that of origin, they need to be rebaptized. That's the, that's the um, access of church membership is baptism. The road to church membership is baptism. That's, the, that's what the Lord hath authorized his churches to do, is to preach the gospel and baptize those that are converted. And so uh, we need to hold to these truths and be faithful until our Lord comes to um, hold these things that were once delivered unto the saints.